the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. My guest this week is crisp entrepreneur Tom Kyo. His family have been farming potatoes in North County Dublin for about 200 years and they branched into making crisps just over a decade ago. Today, Kyo's crisps have a near 13% share of the Irish market and are exporting to many countries overseas, notably the United States. You'll hear Tom explain the roots of the business, the challenges involved in getting the crisp business off the ground and taking on Tato. He also talks to me about the impact of COVID-19 on its operation and the key ingredients to being a successful entrepreneur. Here we go. Tom Kyo, thank you for joining Inside Business. Now, all your marketing material suggests that the family has been in the potato business, which, of course, is where crisps come from, for more than 200 years. So take us back to that, uh, the first farmer, if you like, in the Kyo family, Mr. Kyo, I presume it was, uh, who started started off on this track. Uh, Kieran, thank you. Absolutely delighted to be here. Um, yeah, great question. M- many years ago, I actually asked a genealogist to look into the, the family history and um, We've we've obviously lots of lots of tombstones in, in the local graveyards of Kyo on them dating way back. But the the earliest document I have of uh, the family actually farming where we are in North County Dublin is is a tithes or, or a land tax paid to the local church that dates back to 1832, and that was uh, Thomas and Catherine Kyo. Thomas, same name as myself, and Catherine Kyo, and they paid land tax on on a, on a plot of land uh, right beside where the the family farm is now. And recently, the, 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 there's a local local farmer close by uh, who farmed apples called uh, Sean McCusker. And Sean, Sean arrived up at the farm. Sean, Sean, Sean is quite elderly now, but Sean arrived up to the farm one day with, with a book called, it's actually called Strong Farmer. And in that book, there's a page and it describes uh, our family farm, where, where it is today from hundreds of years ago. And it actually says that there was a field of potatoes there that never caught blight during the famine. It's amazing, and uh, it, fe- it it fed the local population, you know. So there's there's great historic ties there uh, to the area. But where where we are in North County Dublin, Old Town, uh, all around that area, it's market gardening for Dublin City, you know, and and that's that's what established all all the farming enterprises around the area. And my family are no different; they've done it for generations, both on my far- my my mother's side, the Farrells from St Margaret's, and and my dad's side, the Kells from Old Town, and. You name it, if you could grow it and make money at it, that's that's what you did. And um, you, you delivered it in the early mornings into the into the Dublin, the Dublin food markets and uh, uh, nice and early. And then you, you went back and you worked your farm and you got the produce ready for, for the next day. So maybe just geolocate for us, for those who are listening, where exactly is Old Town? What nearby landmarks are there that you can sort of yeah. give to people? Very good. So we're about 15 minutes north of Dublin Airport. Uh, Old Town would be geographically kind of equidistant between Swords and Ashburn. And that kind of, that's the heartland of North County Dublin. And, and it's amazing. A lot of people arrive out to our farm and they say, we can't be still in Dublin. And they don't realise that there is this, this uh, lovely yeah, food producing area in North County Dublin that actually produces, I think it's about 64% of the fresh food in Ireland is either grown or packed in North County Dublin, 
yeah, and supplied really? in, supplied into the national markets. Yeah, so it's it's a real powerhouse for food production. Um, and this and is market gardening. You're not. There's no cows or uh, no. lambs, uh, etc. There's there's little bits. Yeah, there's little right. bits. Uh, but but mainly market gardening. Lots and, and all and all fresh produce. So so that that's what my 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 family have done for for generations and generations. I I suppose um, there was a big break. Well, back in the 1950s. Um, uh, 1956, 1957, I think, were the two two of the wettest years on record in Ireland between before 2012. I don't know if you remember 2012. It was a very wet summer, but in 1956, 1957, I don't. Uh, the, the stories I've heard, the rain never stopped. And my granddad, who was farming on the farm, had a very small land holding, had six children, and uh, his crops failed two years on the trot. And back then, there was an incentive for people to go to Australia and work. There was a special name on the ticket, I can't remember. But uh, my granddad had no choice. Um, they were going to starve or else he was going to emigrate. So he hopped on a, he hopped on a boat, uh, left my grandmother and, and the, the six children at home, and my dad was the eldest, and uh, he went to Australia. And he, he, he ended up in Australia working in Adelaide. And uh, in Adelaide, while he was there, he came across a thing called a tomato. And back then, a tomato was extremely exotic fruit and not something that you would find in, in any shop. Indeed, this was before supermarkets. You know, a few years later, Fergal Quinn would go on to establish the first super, uh, supermarket. But uh, my granddad stayed in Australia. He earned some money and he came back to, he came back to Ireland at a time when there was, there was no money around. Um, there was, the banks weren't loaning any money, but he had a few bob in his back pocket and he built a glass house beside the family f- family house and he started growing tomatoes at a time when a tomato was extremely exotic. Was he the first? I don't know, but he was definitely a, a very early pioneer in the area and uh, started growing tomatoes and supplying them into the local. Eventually, we would start supplying Fergal Quinn in, his, in one of his first supermarkets. And my granddad built up a fantastic business there in 1960s and 1970s and had glass houses all over the family farm grow, growing tomatoes and, and cucumbers and, and uh, anything he could, he could grow in those glass houses he did. And that led on to the, to the late 1970s. And uh, I suppose my dad would have been in probably early 20s at that stage. And the fuel crisis hit. And when the fuel crisis hit, um, basically, uh, we couldn't afford to heat the glass houses anymore. So we couldn't grow the crops. And at that stage, the the Spanish industry had got its acting gear and they were producing tomatoes and everything en masse and in, in exporting them into the Irish market for, for a lot cheaper than we could produce them. So that was, I suppose, my granddad had about 20 years there of a heyday. He was, he was, he was a real innovator ahead of his time. But the fuel crisis came in and, and, and really killed off that industry. And uh, that kind of stopped tomatoes. But my dad and my uncle... They they were they they were growing a lot of brassicas, so they started growing cabbage, cauliflowers, um, sprouts. My earliest memory on the family farm is 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 picking sprouts, and the sprout plant was the same height as my my face. So you know, a sprout plant's the height of your knee. So gives you an idea of what age they started out in North County Dublin. <laughs> Um, but uh, that's what they did brassicas. I remember broccoli actually coming in as this huge innovation, you know, uh, as as a new a new food type in in the brassicas, and we we grew, grew broccoli. But again, cheap 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 imports coming into Ireland from the UK uh, really started to put a, put a ceiling on that industry. It's very very difficult to make money. 
and potatoes were always there. Uh, potatoes were always part of what we did. Um, beautiful climate in Ireland for potatoes. Uh, we grow a very, very good, high quality product in North County Dublin. And um, my dad started to kind of pivot a little bit and focus really on growing the, growing the potatoes. And that was the start of, you know, turning us into what, what Kyo's are today. So when did the Kyo's brand, when was it developed? Because I'm sure it wasn't, wasn't at that stage. No, no. It's, it's actually, it's a really interesting story. Um, back then, we sold under the brand Cream of the Crop. Uh, I think it was I think it was a brand that my mom actually came up with and she designed a little sticker and, and every little bag that left the farm had the cream, the crop uh, logo on it. So, you know, the family were always very much invested in the branding of, of what you produced because it really, we knew that we, you know, everything we produced on the farm is extremely high quality, you know, and being able to associate a brand with that is huge, there's huge, there's a legacy there, you know, so, so you, re- you really need to, to get the branding right. And where the Kyo brand came from, if you fast track, fast track to the to the mid 2000s, so about 2005, 2006, and uh, I've I've come out of I've come out of school, and uh, my dad's a potato farmer, and um, between the years of 2000 and 2010, fresh potato consumption in Ireland fell by 50 percent, five zero. So as a young uh, as a as a young guy coming onto a family farm with, you know, a brother and a cousin behind him as well, wanting to come onto the family farm, we really needed to do something about it. Um, and there's various different reasons why why potato consumption fell. One of the key ones was the Atkins diet. If you remember the Atkins diet back then, everybody it was all anti-carb, nobody eat carbs, and potatoes were obviously the, the 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 very popular carb. So it just started to fall off the national plate. Uh, pasta rice um, people start to change their diets so um potatoes potatoes really needed uh, focus and, the, and and it needed kind of a national recovery plan really if 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 we as a generation were going to make a go of of making a viable business of it so um one of the <clears throat> one of the first things i did was um develop a product called easy cook potatoes and at the time, it was revolutionary. I, 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 we were the first people in the world to do it. And it's a very simple concept. It's, it's a bag of potatoes. You know, they are washed, then they are washed again. And they're really, then they are sized all evenly. So they all cook in exactly the same time. And then we put them in a special bag with a valve on the bag that regulates the pressure. That bag can be thrown in the microwave and it can be microwaved fresh in its own steam in seven minutes. So that was a huge innovation in potatoes, revolutionized what we did and really started to, uh, you know, reinvent the product in the face of the Irish consumer. And we launched that product under the Superquin brand. At the time, we were supplying potatoes to Superquin. And we launched it under the Superquin brand and it failed. And um, Why? this is it. We said, how are people not buying this? So... Um, one day we were actually getting an audit on the farm from Borbia and uh, the, the auditor said to me, he said, Tom, they came across the product. I said, we just developed ourselves. And they said, this is amazing. Have you tried to put it into focus groups? And back then I, I didn't even know what a focus group was. So I said, yeah, sounds good. Let's try it. So uh, we put the product into the focus group and um, we also put beside it, and it was a great, it, I'm delighted we did it. We put a product beside it that said cream in the crop Peter Cowan Sons. Very simple label, no, no, no fancy design. And then it went into the focus group and the feedback came out of the focus group was that 
if they were going to buy into innovation in the category, uh, a new product as groundbreaking as this. Superqueen are great retailers, uh, but we're not necessarily going to going to buy this idea from them. Peter Kyo is a is a potato grower that knows what he's at, and he, if he's developing this, we'll buy into that. So that single insight led to us rebranding the family business because the, the, the branding was very old and we needed to be able to market to a new, younger audience. And, and it was a generational shift. So that's where we tendered out the branding in the business. And I'd never done anything like it before. I, I learned a lot during the process, but we, eventually there was, a, there was a company in London called Leahy's. So the two Leahy brothers come over to visit us. Sounded um, like they have Irish roots. Yeah, yeah, or they did actually. And uh, I'll never forget, they were the only people that came into us and said, that he, spent, he spent a day with us and uh, he left, he went to offices, I'll be, I'll be back to you in two weeks. And he came back and he said, listen, this is what I think. And this event, this wasn't just a, a design, we were looking for a brand, you know, and we were looking for the next, we were looking to the next 50 years. And he, he very, very revolutionary, he just said, guys, you're living a story. All I need to do is tell your story. That was it. Groundbreaking. Sounds so simple, but back then it was groundbreaking. And we said, okay, let's take that approach. And um, it led, obviously, the family name, Kyo's, was used. But I suppose the difference in direction was that they started to use the producer as the hero. And that was... I suppose number one is really embarrassing for, for us because all of a sudden we, we had our pictures on bags and we were talking about the family and all this type of stuff. Uh, but um, it was groundbreaking. Back then, th- we were the first people to do this. You would not find a picture of a farmer on product or in a supermarket or anybody talking about where their product came from. So that was a shift. And today, if you walk into mm. any food supermarket, you, you'll see, you'll you'll be falling over pictures of oh, John from Kilkenny made this and, and so blah, forth. Yeah. yeah, but back then that was that was two thousand six, I think. It was revolutionary. Yeah, and um, it really hit a note with the Irish consumer. Really did. Yeah. Are those potatoes those microwavable potatoes? Are they still going yeah. strong? Yeah, they're yeah. fine. They're fine. And it, we we were the first. I I, well, I think we were the first in the world to do it. And if you look around today, every single shop. In every single country around the world, really has products. Say now, putting potatoes in a bag and sticking them in the microwave doesn't sound terribly appetising. It might be convenient, but doesn't sound terribly appetising as opposed to yeah. you know boiling them or steaming them and getting mm. some butter out and well, making mash or whatever. It, it I suppose, in its defence, it it's a healthier way to cook the product because you actually retain far more vitamins and minerals than boiling, and. Uh, because it's actually, it's not just, like if you just throw a potato in a microwave and microwave it, it'll get shriveled up. It's not, not very appetising. Whereas if you use a steam bag like that, it actually comes out like a boiled potato. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful texture, all evenly cooked. Really, really good. Okay. Yeah, really good. All right, interesting. I'll have, I'll have to get you a few bags in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You'll have to also buy me a microwave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But that's a, that's a whole separate story. So take us on the journey then towards, you've got your brand now, you have yeah. your potatoes. So mm. how did you arrive at the point where you decided we're going to go into the crisp market? The crisp market, yeah. So um, so the brand was there on the potatoes. We had, obviously, we were, tr- we were trying to solve this potato consumption issue in Ireland. And... Uh, I believe it or not, I was at a family wedding on my wife's side in Staten Island. 
and I was at the wedding and everybody was coming up to me like I was a leprechaun. Uh, I heard you're a potato farmer uh, from Ireland. Uh, you know, can you get me some potatoes? And like this was said over and over again, people wanted to buy Irish potatoes. So this is amazing. I, I never thought this existed. And um, I started to, I, I phoned Borbia, I got the name of a couple of distributors in America and I phoned up and said, listen, I think there's an opportunity here, uh, you know, uh, to, to supply Irish potatoes into, into the States. There's, you know, there's 47 million Irish Americans on the eastern seaboard alone. You know, there's something here. So... I thought I was going to solve the Irish potato problem overnight and uh, got, uh, actually, all the distributors started asking for samples, so sent samples out and, you know, a few days later, the samples uh, arrived back at the office, big red sticker on them from the FDA, you know, this product is brand, never ever attempt to send this into the States. So did a bit of research and, of course, found out fresh potatoes, you know, photosanitary, no way you're going to get them into America came across a couple of projects that other countries had done to try and get around this and, and they hadn't been successful. So um, it was actually during one of the conversations with the uh, the Amla Plant Health official in the FDA in New Jersey. I remember the conversation and she said, Mr. Kyo, you know, why, why don't you cook your potatoes? Because if you cook your potatoes, you don't have to talk to me. You can bypass all this red tape. So light bulb moment. Okay, let's start to look at things a little bit differently. And... Um, started to look at, okay, what can we make out of these potatoes? And at the time, there was a couple of things that I had taken notice of. And I suppose number one was the uh, there was a trend in premiumization had just come into food. And you would get this tiered approach to food in the supermarket, whereby you would have a really premium crisp, a normal crisp, and then kind of the cheap multi-pack crisps. And this premium crisp was was the new innovation. So that had started in it had started in the US. It was it had moved to the UK and the UK was start. It was starting to get traction in the UK. And there was a couple of brands, early brands that capitalized on that. So that was number one. Then you had the Kyo brand with the provenance uh, and the you know, that meet the producer. Uh, transparency, traceability, everything that all those real great values that were in the Kyo's brand that really fell into this premiumization category. So I said, okay, this is really interesting. Um, I think we should actually go out and make a few crisps. So, so uh, literally jumped off a tractor and jumped into a plane and started flying around the world to try find out how to make crisps. I I, I knew we we had to make a really premium great tasting product if we came into the market with a mediocre product you know the 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 potatoes of the world would just wipe the floor with us but we need to be differentiated you know we need to be really high quality and that took me four years took me four years to get to get that knowledge together seasonings uh oils we knew the potato that that was that was the starting bit we had a foundation in it and so needed to do all of that got the funding together um, and how did you put the, explain that to us now. How did you put the funding together? And I'm also curious as to which other crisps that you tried, you thought, oh, yeah, we could do something around that. Yeah. So it, the, the other brands that were out there at the time, in those early days, you had, I think the very first in the UK was a brand called Burt's. Um, you were making a really great product. Uh, you had a brand called Tyrrell's, who started afterwards. Uh, and then you had the, that kettle brand from the USA that, that they were there. Uh, all those brands have since been sold off on into into equity, etc. 
um, in regards to the funding for our own. So, so what I basically what I did was I, I started the pro, literally started that business up in a shoestring. Um, I had if you remember the the SSIAs uh, back back in the day, there was an SSIA there. I got I got a, got a few kid off my dad. The local enterprise board, Leo, got a grant off the local enterprise board, and uh, I bought my first fryer out of an Amish community in Pennsylvania. Yeah, incredibly. This, I think, was about a 50-year-old fryer I bought out of an Amish community in Pennsylvania and uh, rented rented a, rented an old potato store off my dad and my uncle, and I lined it, uh, high-care high food production, and put the little fryer in the corner of it and uh, honestly started with a bucket of potatoes, <laughs> like a pre-weighed bucket weight of potatoes, hand-feeding it through, through a slicer into the fryer, stirring it all by hand into a drum to, to season it in the drum with the seasonings. I used to yeah, apply the seasonings in the drum and then from there straight into the bagger and into the bag and out the door. And I, I started doing um, started 12 bags. I was doing 12 bags a minute. Yeah, and I thought I was taking over the world <laughs> at 12 bags a minute. So very, very small beginnings. Had no marketing budget, but we, need, we, were, we needed to be really clever and with PR. So we were, we were, we did some really clever things in the early days around PR. Like uh, we developed the very first National Potato Day. Um, and it was a kind of a tongue in cheek idea. <coughs> um, Ireland didn't have a National Potato Day. We have, we have National Days for everything. But uh, we didn't have a National Potato Day. So um, there was there was a lady working with me at the time called Alison Kelly in, in PR. And Alison has, has since passed. But Alison was a, was, a, was a bit of a legend. And she just constant ideas coming through. But we said, OK, let's let's try Launch Ireland's first National Potato Day. And uh, I rented out a space in Merrion Square. It was the 25th of August. I'll never forget it. 25th of August, 2011. And we rented out a space in Merrion Square. I think we had, we were making making chips. We had like the Potato Olympics set up in in Marion Square, uh, some entertainment for kids, etc. And uh, I think it was, a, it was a Friday afternoon. I think we did, and I'll never forget uh, that morning. I was up early. I was I was loading the truck to bring all the bring all the stuff into Marion Square for 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 the events, and I was driving in uh, into Dublin, and AA Roadwatch came on the radio. It was a two, like two FM AA Roadwatch. And he was warning everybody to stay clear of Marion Square because Ireland's first ever National Potato Day was <laughs> happening. And I said, oh, my God, we're on to something here. And uh, anyway, day was a huge success. And when the dust settled, we had we had get we had got media coverage worth one point eight million euro for uh, I think it was about 17,000 euro spent. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I it actually won PR campaign of the year I think that, that year and that was the first thing we'd ever done it was amazing pardon my ignorance was does National Potato Day survive until now it does yeah yeah. so so I was very proud to actually hand it over to Borbia on behalf of the potato industry they now handle it so everybody everybody's in behind it so uh, yeah we, we started it with kind of a, a tongue in our cheek but uh, today it's, it's a great event it's celebrated by all the, the industry um, and um, it's great to get that. It helps with that consumer awareness. It really yeah, does. Sure. So, yeah. how much money did you put together for to get the business off the ground? Oh, I'd say, I'd say we probably got that started with one hundred fifty thousand. One hundred fifty grand. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now you talked about leaving school. Did you go to university? Um, I did. I went to I went to UCD to do ag science. I wasn't a college guy. 
Uh, all I wanted to do was, was work. Um, and I ended up leaving UCD. I, I played a bit of football for UCD and I came home that season to do the potato planting. And I said, no, I'm not going back. So um, I did. I, I came Are we home. talking about the end of first year? Or? End of first year, yeah. Right. Uh, and and I, I was working and working working at home on the family farm. And it, it but I, you know, since what, what has happened, I suppose once the crisp business started to get traction, I mean, okay, there's something here. In the early days, I realized, okay, I have a knowledge gap. Yeah, here, I, I also have an experience gap that it's too late for me to fill the experience gap, but it's never too late for me to fill the knowledge gap. So I went back to college, uh, went back to college at night. Uh, I, I went to Dublin Business School here. I did marketing and, and public relations. Uh, then I went to, I went to Smurfit. I did, I think it's global food strategy in Smurfit. And that is, I just love college now because it's, you know, I, I just really enjoy learning, especially learning stuff that you use on a day to day basis. I, I, I really love it. Like I'm, I'm just back from Singapore, having spent a week of learning with, with EY. Yeah, I'm constantly going back to going back doing courses, professional development and not just me, all my senior team, everybody in my business now. I've like I actively push people to get into courses and to continually learn and continue to develop themselves. Uh, today. Yeah, sure. The EY you mentioned is the Entrepreneur of the Year programme. You've been shortlisted as a finalist um, this year. Congratulations on that. So you're one of what, 24 finalists and you headed out to Thank you. Singapore yeah. for this uh, CEO retreat. Tell us a little bit about that. How did it go? Yeah, um, amazing experience. I was number one, Singapore. Uh, I, I'd never been. Uh, and for me, I, I got to hit two birds with the one stone because I had a meeting with a quite, quite a large distributor on, on the mon last Monday to try to get that deal across the line. So so hopefully we'll have a, a distribution partner now for the entire of Southeast Asia. So I got that out of the way before before the week started. We're also we're supplying Singapore Airlines now as well. So uh, it, was, it was great to get over there and, you know, you know, uh, be able to, to press the flesh in the, in the local area. Um, but the, the, the EUI week kicked off on the Monday and um, I didn't I didn't know what to expect. Um, but I have to say, I'm absolutely blown away coming back from it. And yes, this amazing schedule, amazing speakers, um, amazing insights and learnings. Um, but what makes it is the people. You know, you're with a group of alumni there and other finalists. And oh my God, to be able to sit down and talk to these people and, and let them tell you their story about their business or businesses and, and how they got started. It, it really is amazing. You know, we've, we've a great uh, community of entrepreneurs here in Ireland, you know, who have some amazing businesses, you know. On that point, are you a farmer or an entrepreneur or a bit of both? <laughs> I remember years ago, I was, I was really lucky. I, I won the Irish Marketeer of the Year and they called me a farmateer. <laughs> uh, so um, I think every farmer in Ireland has a bit of an entrepreneur in them, entrepreneur in them. Uh, and I think they have to. It's the only way you have to survive. Um, you know, not many people can deal with a business, a business where its landscape basically can change from a week to week basis. So I think uh, I think I think farmers in general have have a huge uh, have a huge talent for that entrepreneurship. And um, that definitely I can see that has come true even in, in my family over the years, right, right up to the generation today. So it's uh, yeah, definitely th th those skills help you help you cope with the day to day challenges. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. 
As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. A former boss of mine who was in trade publishing uh, once said to me that his definition of an entrepreneur was somebody who used their own money to start their own business. Yeah. And he felt that the term entrepreneur is thrown around too loosely now. What's your view? I definitely agree with that. I definitely think the the term is thrown around very loosely. I've, I've, I, somebody handed me a business card recently and they described their, their job as entrepreneur. I've never seen that before. But I think in regards to the, the definition of an entrepreneur, I think, like, number one, you have the talent to see an opportunity, number one. So recognize the opportunity. Then number two, you have the appetite for risk because you, you, you need to, you will be taking risk and trying to capitalize on that opportunity and be that, be that financial, be that time, whatever it is. And then number three is actually having the skills uh, to actually capitalize on that. And um, I think those three traits are really important. Um, from I remember starting off, and I remember I remember thinking, the fear, the fear of never trying, is 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 worse than the fear of failure, in my mind. And you know that that that's something I thought in the early days. You know what is what's going to be like in twenty years time? You look back and you actually never did this. You know, so I think I think that's that's key. Yeah, sure. Mm. Okay, let's go back to crisps. You were talking about your first days in the business. You were doing 12 packets an hour and you thought you were, yeah. you were going great guns. Yeah. Now, Tato is the big player in the Irish crisp market, or certainly was back then, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Largo Foods, I don't know if it's still called Largo Foods now. That was Ray Coyle. He had Tato, he had King, he had Hunky Dory, and yeah. I think he had a couple of other uh, brands as well. That's now uh, owned by Intersnack, which is a big German uh, snack food company. Mm. Um, so what was it like going up against those uh, competitors back in the early days? Did they take you seriously? Did they try to put you out of business? Uh, Walkers was probably yeah. in the market at that stage as well, flooding the market with kind of cheap crisps, high volume yeah. into supermarkets. Yeah, they were. So I suppose just to paint the picture of the landscape, you have you basically a, a company called uh, Intersnack, who, as you rightly said, is German based. They they control possibly about seventy five percent of the Irish market, and they own every brand from O'Donnell's right through to Hunky Dory's, uh, King, Tato, all the brands we know, uh, and they're all they're all they're all owned by Intersnack, manufactured in Ashburn, but but owned by owned by a German company. Uh, outside of that, then you have Walkers Frito Lay, uh, another massive global player, um, and they have possibly maybe twelve to fifteen percent. And then Kyo's have the rest. And we're, we're, we are the only Irish-owned manufacturer and brand of crisps in the Republic of Ireland. Um, the only one? Only one. We're flying that flag. And um, in, in the early days, uh, we came up against that wall. And our point of difference was, I suppose, we, it was the Irishness, obviously, number one. Uh, but at a consumer level, you know, you've brands like Tato and stuff. Do people really read that deep into it? Probably not. Um, the quality difference was key. You know, having, having that point of difference around quality. Because I've seen it with so many startup businesses whereby they create amazing brand, amazing packaging. Um, they get the price right. But the product doesn't deliver. 
and the consistency is not there. So, so having, having the product right, don't mind what the brand or the packaging or anything is, get that product right so your customer will come back and buy you. Uh, great marketing will get you one purchase. It won't get you the second one unless the product really delivers. And that's, that's, a, that's kind of approach that I took from day one. I, I am, we invested everything into the quality of the product, really did. And we started to get little wins away, you know, and, you know, I used to drive around the country in a van selling crisps, you know, wherever I could from Donegal down to Wexford, uh, you know, little distributor here, little distributor there. And uh, gradually we started to build up, build up the, re the repeat sales, the repeat sales. And, you know, store owners say to us, oh, they sold well, they sold well. Great. Well, you'll take an extra box this week, will you? I will. Great. So little by little, we built it up slowly but surely. I didn't have the big budget to invest in shelf space or, you know, huge big marketing campaigns. It was it was all it was all very, very organic, uh, but it, it deserved everything it got because the product was really good. Yeah, I have said, I think you've been very clever in your marketing and you've been very skillful as well in the way you've done it. And clearly you had to do it on a, a tight budget yeah. back in those early days. I guess things have uh, have probably loosened up a bit uh, now. So take us from the early uh, days when you you just had that one facility, you're doing 12 packets of crisps. Yeah. Where are you at now? Um, today, uh, I would have... I have four production lines running at about a hundred bags a minute. So yeah, when we want to turn the turn the turn the cog and really get the crisps out, we we do. But we're we're each production line is doing a hundred a minute. About a hundred minutes. So yeah, you're, doing, you're capable of doing four hundred a, a minute, minute compared yeah. to twelve a minute. On yeah, day one. where yeah. I started. Yeah, and that twelve a minute only ran for a day, right. and, then, and then and then we went off and and did, did other work. But now, yeah, we we run uh, six days a week. 13 hours a day. Uh, most weeks would actually have to run the seventh day as well. And um, we're probably doing, I'd say we're doing over a million bags a month, uh, a little over. Um, so we're 13% of the Irish market and we're growing very fast in the Irish market. Um, the pandemic actually, believe it or not, the pandemic actually really helped our business uh, in that I suppose people were spending a lot more time at home. They were snacking a lot more and uh, because there was huge issues with supply chain, um, local supply uh, really won through. So we could deliver when when overseas products could not, and um, you know we we got extra shelf space. We we would deliver to the stores every day, and because of that, a lot more people were introduced to our products during the pandemic. And what has happened since then is that as everybody's kind of got back to the normal day today we've retained those new customers. So they stayed with us. And then we've had the recovery of the whole food service sector. So the, the delis and the four courts, and they've all come back in now. And that has recovered with us. So we had we had a bit of a bounce into into the pandemic. And now we've had a bounce out of the pandemic. So it's 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 we've had beautiful growth right, right the way through. And um, on the back of that, the bad news was that our export markets disappeared in the early days of, of the pandemic. And uh, the airlines, we, we had created a really innovative product for the airlines and uh, we, that was really starting to go well for us. And the airlines just shut down shop. So, so all, the, all that just disappeared. So the gains we got at home negated the losses we had overseas. So all in all, a slight increase. But now the, the world has woken up again. 
you know, exports, exports are back moving again. The airline industry is now above 2019 levels with us. So it's, 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 it's going, it's going really well. So many staff? Uh, we bid 150. Yeah. Revenues? Uh, I can't tell you that. Uh, we don't, we don't disclose that at the minute. You won't tell us about revenues, but tell us a little bit then about the export markets. Where were you at pre-COVID and where are you at now? So the export markets pre-COVID, we were, I'd say we're probably probably maybe 10 export markets pre-COVID. Mm. Uh, the airline industry was just starting in a small uh, in, a, in a small way with us. Now post-COVID, I think we're in about we're in about 20 markets overseas. So many bags of crisps are you sending overseas every week? Oh, so it's about 25% volume. So what's that? About, about a quarter million bags a week. Yeah, going, going overseas. Oh, sorry, not a week, sorry, a month. About a quarter million bags a month. And um, Biggest markets? Biggest markets will be the States. Yeah, so the USA. So we're... We've a we've a lovely distribution hub in the Northeast around Boston, and um, supplying into the retailers there. Uh, product's gone extremely well. We're actually the biggest selling snack food product with that with that distributor. And is it Irish Americans buying it? Do you think, or um, is it going to a wider? I I'm, I hope I hope there is, but my goal is the is the wider audience. I I want my product to stand up head and shoulders above everything else and people for people to buy it because its quality is better than anything else that's on the market. Are you having to tweak the tastes yeah. for American palates? Yeah, we do. So what so, are you doing? So we've d- we did some consumer research there and the flavours and what we, what we noticed is that we need to increase our salt content just slightly. So it's a small salt count. So we would just do slightly stronger flavours into the American market and we would also do stronger flavours into the airlines because the taste palette doesn't taste flavors as well with the pressure at the at the higher pressure in the, in the cabins so we need to increase the the strength of the flavors there a little bit as well yeah. right bigger bags for america or? believe it or not we do we've we do one bag for costco and oh my god it's like a pillow it's it's incredible and you know it's it's like a family would eat it in a week we we've we've pictures sent in from us of people's people at baseball games you know like eating one of these bags and I can't, I can't remember, I think it's over an ounce. It's a huge bag, absolutely huge bag. But yeah, they sell them in Costco and they sell very well. Nice, okay. Mm. How many flavours have you gotten to go? Oh, wow. I think we're about 17 or 18. And the latest is uh, Whiskey Barbecue. That has, that's out for this summer. It's a summer seasonal. Uh, we teamed up with the guys in, in Teelings there to get, to get the whiskey, whiskey ingredient. So uh, we spray dry the whiskey, the Teelings whiskey into a flavor incorporated with barbecue seasonings and uh, beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. Um, this time last year, we launched a cashew blue cheese uh, and a caramelized onion. Uh, beautiful flavor. Done very, very well here in Ireland. And uh, we're actually continuing to sell it overseas. Um, what we find is a lot of the niche flavors here in Ireland. Like the year before, we did a truffle butter, a Glenillan Farm butter. We did that the year before for a summer seasonal, and that's our biggest selling flavor overseas today. Wow. Yeah, incredible. Uh, so, what's the best performing flavor in the portfolio? Oh, cheese and onion. Yeah, cheese and onion. Cheese and onion. Okay. From, a, from an Irish context, we're, 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 we're gas as a country. We, we, we love our cheese and onion, where it's just over 60% of the portfolio will be cheese and onion in its various different guises. Um, and uh, as soon as you leave the country, that completely changes. But we're, we're, we're cheese, and onion, cheese and onion crazy here. And it's very interesting because <coughs> cheese and onion as a flavor, as we know it in Ireland, is, is not cheese and onion. Uh, we think it's cheese and onion because we've been brought up with it. And I remember, I remember that my, in the early days when I was developing my first cheese and onion flavor, uh, my flavorist was, was, was working with the flavors with me. He says, okay, there's 
cheese, there's a cheese and onion version. I taste it and I said, that's not cheese and onion. I said, that's, that's like a, a horrible artificial type cheese with a tiny bit of onion. He said, no, that's cheese and onion. So cheese actually, ha- what we would think as an artificially cheesy taste, that's actually a natural cheese. But what's happened in Ireland over the years is that all the cheese has been taken out of all the cheese and onion. So you actually have an onion flavour with a tiny bit of cheese. So this is false marketing. <laughs> I'm not so sure if it's false marketing, but it's There's no we, cheese in the cheese and onion. This is a major revelation. A revelation. There's only a little bit of cheese. And I've only come to notice this because we sell this product overseas. And when we're doing tastings, I remember years ago doing a tasting in um, Dean and DeLuca, one of the food halls in Manhattan. And the customers were coming up and saying, this is not cheese and onion. I said, it is cheese and onion. Said, this is not cheese and onion. This is onion. And because they're not from Ireland, yeah. They haven't been brought up with the flavour. So they don't recognise that that's what we refine a cheese and onion to be. So, um, yeah, cheese but and onion. But there definitely is whiskey in the whiskey and barbecue. There's whiskey in the whiskey and barbecue. There's there's meat in our steak flavours. We're the only product that has actually an, a meat And chilli. You have a chilli version as well, don't you? We have a chilli. Yeah, Taylor's of Lusk do our chillies. Um, okay. Yeah, so we, we freeze dry an Irish chilli into that. Your um, favourite? Your favourite? Oh, my favourite is our apple balsamic vinegar and sea salt so salt and vinegar salt crinkle and vinegar cut yeah okay yeah our apple balsamic vinegar is just it's, it's absolutely amazing uh david llewellyn in lusk makes makes an irish apple balsamic vinegar and we spray dry that onto the flavor and it's 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 rate of sale as a salt and vinegar is way bigger than anything else on the market amazing synergy going on between all the food producers of dublin for your yeah. flavored crisps so you popcorn as well we do yeah yeah. Right. Is that a big seller? Or is it that- is. Yeah, popcorn sales last year were up about forty percent. Yeah, okay. really high. Um, honey popcorn is our biggest selling flavor. Um, I have a, I have a, I have a honey farm. We've lots of bees. We've lots of hives. Keep about sixteen hives. We harvest the honey off them twice a year, and uh, that gets sprayed right into the flavor as well. So it's a natural honey. It's a lovely story behind it. Lovely natural honey. The reason I did it is because I, I couldn't get Irish honey. Uh, found it really difficult. Every honey I looked at came from 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 Hungary or somewhere like that in Eastern Europe. So I said, right, we'll go and make our own honey. And uh, our popcorn comes from South of France. Beautiful quality, really big popcorn. Believe it or not, I actually grew popcorn in Ireland for five years, uh, unsuccessfully trying to make a go at developing commercial crop here. But I, I couldn't. We we just don't have the climate in the in the autumn to to dry out the product. So uh, our, our our popcorn comes from South of France. Yeah. Now, I'm sure you get some unusual requests from overseas for various uh, flavours. Tell us about some of the some, some of the weirdest ones you've come across. Uh, some of the weirdest? We, yeah, we've had some really strange requests. Uh, that octopus blood and seaweed from South Korea, that was that was a bit shocking. Yeah, octopus blood and seaweed. Um, Did you do it? Uh, no, we didn't. No, <laughs> we, said, we said no to that one. Uh, there was one strange one we did, we did produce. I remember um, Jedward. Gerard had a had a really great program on television. It was like a like a make a wish program. And uh, this this young lady, I'll never forget her. She her wish was to visit a crisp factory. So the producers phoned us up and said, D- D- "Could we do this with you guys?" So uh, yes, only delighted. So the, the she, as part of the program, we said we'd make she was to make a special flavor for Jedward. So um, we asked Jedward, what, what's, what's your favorite? You know, what's your favorite products? What would you like the flavor to be? And it was sushi one of the guys liked sushi and the other guys liked cereal bar I said can we combine the two together to make a nice flavour so it was sushi and cereal bar and we made the flavour fair place my flavourist natural sushi cereal bar ingredients the whole lot in and we made this gigantic bag of crisps 
for, for Jedward that went onto the television programme. But that flavour was absolutely delicious. Really? Yeah. Sushi and Sealer Bar. Who would who would, who would have thought? Have you made it since? We ha- no, we haven't made it since. I suppose there's a couple of things with flavour. Delicious but not profitable. Yeah, it's having the flavour descriptor mm. is nearly as important as having the taste. Yeah, if sure. you know what I mean. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, tell us about your plans, your growth plans. Uh, then I, I, you've been putting money into your uh, facility out in North Dublin, haven't you? And I know yeah. you have plans um, to grow in the American market. So, uh, t- paint a picture for us. Uh, let's say in five years' time. Yeah. So, re- really exciting. Um, so, over, over the last number of years, I've had to expand the factory probably three big times and every time has been you know two three four million investment so there's been a there's been a lot of money invested in the in the, in the factory back in, on the on the family farm um we're you know, we're, we're just towards the latter end of our new five-year strategy five-year plan for the business and we we can see we can see where the growth is going to come from there's there's still really like our penetration is still relatively low in the irish market you know so there's a lot of people in ireland believe it or not haven't tried our products yet so uh, we have a long way to grow in ireland and overseas is really exciting. You know, when we see the performance of our product in some of the markets, like in America, in, in, in world markets, we are we're the biggest selling snack food product. They have 270 stores coast to coast and we're their biggest seller, which is which is amazing. You know, so so we're, we're, our focus is to capitalize on that, you know, to, to really ch- go after the, the American market, airlines, Europe, yeah, Far East. Um, but to do that, I, I, I need more more capacity. You know, need we we plenty of acres for potatoes, but uh, I need I need more space for for fryers and baggers and seasoning and and, and uh, popcorn has grown very fast as well. So um, we've just we've just secured uh, rezoning on the family farm to get uh, a, a plot of land factory ready. So 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 that's just across the road from where the factory is at the moment, but it's about a thirty acre site there. So we have that zoned as uh, food commercial. So. Uh, We've just started the design process now of that site. So, uh, but a nine-month process to get that to get that done. And uh, how much will that cost? I'd say we'll probably. But the budgets aren't. We're not near a budget level yet. But I would estimate we will throw ten to twelve million into that. Um, it's going to so be. So where does that money come from? Good question. <laughs> Have you got some? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so obviously there'll, there'll be an element of self-funding. Uh, we're going to bring the banks in as well. Um, we, we've been very lucky over the years. We've had support from Enterprise Ireland and some of the expansion projects. Please God, they, they'll continue to support us in this as well. Um, and what I also find with some of these projects is that if you have if a chance to keep ahead of yourself and do things at a pace that you can save yourself money is really important. Um, if you want to get things done yesterday, it's very expensive. So being ahead of yourself in planning, being ahead of yourself in design, you know what you're doing, you know where everything's going. So you can actually, okay, this year, you know, we're going to do this. You know, next year we might even do a little bit more. So being able to have that foresight actually can save you a lot of money in the long run. Um, so there'll, there'll be a mix of, I say, self and bank and hopefully, hopefully Enterprise Ireland. And um, our plan is to hopefully have that live maybe for late 26 and, and grow on from there. Yeah. So in terms of revenues, I know you don't want to give a figure away, but let's say look out five years. Uh, what kind of growth in revenues are you expecting over that period? We've we've the ability the 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 gap is there the headroom for us to double the size of the business double the size okay yeah. so a million crisps a month at the minute mm. how many millions in five years uh, well I suppose it all depends on the size of the bags but I'd, hopefully two million if not more maybe two and a half right yeah yeah per month uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a lot of crisps 
It's a lot yeah. of curse. But the, 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 listen, the, the real challenge is is the quality. You know, we we sell we sell on a high quality message, and you know, as part of this move with the business to the new site, you know, it's an amazing opportunity to actually implement new technologies, new processes that will take our product to another level when it comes to actually to yeah. actual consistency around quality. I've had your Chris there, very good quality. Uh, congratulations Thank you, on that. Um, few other things. Mm. When you were a young kid and before uh, Kyo's crisps came into being, were you a crisp fan? And if you were, uh, was it Tato by any chance? I wasn't a huge crisp fan, to be honest with you. Um, so what Tato, it wasn't, no. Believe it or not, it was King. And I think I think most of the family a would like that. Product. Yeah, yeah, we did. Well, back then, back then, King was probably a different business. Mm. Yeah, uh, but yeah, King crisps were the they were the ones we liked when we were kids. That's yeah. a big pop crisp, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's good too. Um, what's your favorite? What's your favorite crisp, and how often do you eat them? Oh well, it would our the Kyo's salt and vinegar crinkle cut. That is my go-to. Yeah. Right. So if I'm if I'm leaving the farm and I'm feeling a bit peckish, yeah, I'll, I'll walk into the factory and rob one off the line <laughs> if, if nobody's looking. Yeah. But you would, I suppose, during the week, you, you, you know, obviously benchmarking is really important and mm. you have to continually taste the product. So, uh, you know. Most, yeah, of course, it's all professional. Yeah, of course. But, uh, you know, joking aside, how often would you eat crisps or your yeah. family? How often I know, would your family I, I, honestly, I would try to have a bag every day. But but you say it's, it's all professional. It, it is, but... If I grab a bag and I'm driving back to the house and I see something wrong, everything stops, you know, because I've noticed something. So it's very important that you have, you know, that you have senior teams, senior people in the business. They need to be tasting this product all the time. Yeah. You know, it's really, it's really important. They're not a healthy product, are they? It's a fine tasting product, no question about it. Mm. But the fat content, what is it, 29, 30% thereabouts? The, it'd be 30%. Uh, and our product, we, listen, we use a higher leg. Uh, sunflower oil, 82% monoamine saturates. You know, very, very healthy oil. Um, our potatoes are very, very high dry matter, which gives a, a lower oil content. Uh, you probably notice the difference when you when you eat a crisp when you go out to Europe, maybe in Spain on holidays, and you a really oily taste yeah. and a thin crisp. It's because of the potatoes. In, in Ireland, we don't get that. In Ireland, you get you get a much crispier texture, cleaner bite, and a slow, slightly lower lower oil content. But but yeah, back to your original point, they're they're not the healthiest product in the world. But they're they're not made to be eaten a couple of times a day. You know, it's a treat product, like 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 most confectionery products. You know, there's something to be enjoyed in the, in their own time. Um, and what about sustainability then? How sustainable is potato farming? And uh, and what, you know the industrial process that yeah. you bring to bear to make crisps? Yeah, it's. It's, I, I suppose, sustainability. In regards to the business sustainability, we were, you know, we were one of the leaders in that field. Believe it or not, we were the first Irish food business to become carbon neutral. Um, and that actually, it's a really interesting story. That came from the work we did in Ethiopia. So um, m- many years back, uh, I was approached by, by Vita, who are a development organization. They're based actually here in Dublin. Mm. Uh, they've offices here in Dublin, but they're also in, in southern Ethiopia. And they, they, they phoned me up and said, Tom, can you come out to southern Ethiopia? We think we have some problems here in the potato crops. So um, a few weeks later, I landed on the ground in Ethiopia and uh, spent a few days touring around the, the, the small holdings there. And it was incredible to see that the, 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 everything was just obliterated with blight. There was no potato crop. And, you know, people were going to go hungry. You know, there was a bit of a shock for me to see. But also, the, the, I suppose the second shock was a positive shock in that the climate and the soils there were absolutely amazing. And you grow amazing food products there 
uh, all you need is the, is the know-how and, and the capabilities and the seed. So with Vita, since then, we've, we've invested with them in seed multiplication uh, sites. So very simple glass houses that protect the seed from, from disease and they can multiply their seeds so they have fresh seed every year. That has been a game changer for the region. And then we've, we've developed a knowledge sharing program. So, so all the best practices that we would have here in Ireland, teaching them to the local farmers there. And everybody's a farmer, you know, and mostly it's the mm. women. The, the women are actually the farmers of the family. That knowledge sharing has been huge, has seen huge improvements in the region. It's amazing to be able to use what you do on a day-to-day basis to the betterment of an impoverished society like that. And we're probably about maybe eight to ten years into this now, but it's, 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 it's really fantastic. And we'll be back out there in November this year. Uh, we bring some of the team out, we visit some of the farms, we see what's happening. We do some some courses with, with the locals there just around, around cultivation, best practices, etc. So re- really, really looking forward to that. We started off by talking about how North County Dublin um, was the home to your family farming over the best part of 200 years. Of course, mm. Dublin City has grown mm. enormously over the past 30 years mm. or so. Dublin Airport is, is near you. That's grown massively Huge, over yeah. that time as well. And the city has come out to meet you. So, again, how sustainable is it for you to have a farm uh, in that location going forward? Or are you going to have to, is the time going to come where you, you'll have to up sticks maybe and cross the border into a neighbouring county, buy some <coughs> land there? Uh, and, you know, what? what is currently the Keogh farm becomes a housing estate or an apartment block or whatever? Yeah, that, that will come. That'll, that'll come in time. It won't be in my lifetime. Won't be in my son or daughter's lifetime, I'd say. Um, we're, we're well out there in North County Dublin. Um, but you, you're right in what you say. Every year there is, there is more competition for land because more land has been given to development in North County Dublin. And, you know, we would, like last two years ago, we, we, we were farming right up against the housing, the housing in Baldoyle. You know, which is, in my mind, that's the start of Dublin. You know, from there, it's all the way out to Leopardstown. You know, it's, it's huge. That's where Dublin starts. And every year you can see the houses moving out, moving out, moving out. So, yes, it, it does make it a little bit harder. Um, you're competing with housing, but you're also competing with, with lots of other products for land, like the recent increase in the in the dairy sector or in the price of milk, et cetera. There's a, there's a, you know, dairy farmers are now paying a lot of money for land. Yeah. And dairy is now, there's a lot more dairy happening out, out in North County Dublin than there would have been in the past. Um, so would you look into other counties? Yeah. We, we already farm out into, into East Mead, et cetera. Yeah, we're out there this year, actually. Um, but, but yeah, these are, this is, I suppose, it's, 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 it's happened in other cities all around the world where farms have just moved and gradually you get pushed out. And yeah, someday mm-hmm. you might have to turn around and say, OK, now. Well, Taylor to used to produce in Dublin, isn't that right? And it's now made in Ashburn. Started the off Chris in factories. Yeah, they did. They did. They did. The old Taylor factory also. The, the last one was in Coolock. That all moved, down to, moved out mm-hmm. to Ashburn there in, in Curaha. Yeah, so... Uh, Slow, slowly but slowly but surely these are these are the challenges these are the challenges we face yeah but there's lots of, like North County Dublin there's a huge amount of land you know a huge amount of really good quality land and running right up into you know East Mead North Loud etc yeah 
Now, your business has been very successful. You've talked us through your growth plans over the next number of years. You must be of interest. You must be on the radar of uh, snack food companies around the world or even private <coughs> equity groups uh, looking to get into the sector, looking to make a return. Oh, yeah. Have you had any offers? Anybody oh, come knocking on your door? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I suppose, yeah, it's a positive thing. We've had we've had several offers and approaches made. I won't say offers, but several approaches made uh, to 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 be to see if we're interested in actually selling the business. But it's it's not something that's ever going to be on my radar. You know, it's uh, you know, I I I love to be able to to hand the business over to the next generation someday, um, like my father did to me, um, and you know that's their decision. So it may not be the right thing for them, but at the moment they're all too young to be able to make that decision. What age are your kids? Uh, so Peter's seven, Heather just turned seven, Heather's just turned five. Yeah, yeah. So very, very young. <laughs> they've they've a good few years to go before they they're in a position to make that decision. Sure. But no, I honestly I I just love what I do, and you know to be able to spring out of the bed in the morning, and run into work, and really enjoy yourself. You you can't put a price on that. And uh, you know I've been lucky enough to meet meet men and women who've done extremely well for themselves and 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 sold their businesses and you know they're very happy but they don't have the spark anymore you know and 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 i have that spark today and i have to say i, I really do enjoy it thank you thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing your story thanks Karen. thank you Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Tom Kyo for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>